Good morning, everyone. Welcome to you. My name is Tim Harris. I'm pastor at Woodburn Baptist Church. All of you guys in Cafe, welcome to you. Thank you for being a part of worship at Woodburn Baptist Church. If you're joining us by audio or video podcast, uh, it is amazing that you found us. Uh, I pray that you're blessed by the word of the Lord this morning. As we turn to Psalm 68, grab a Bible and turn. Psalm 68, just finished the message series that we called Life on Mission, but most of you know that's our theme for the entire year. So I'm going to keep coming back to and walking around and pointing us toward what it means to live lives on mission. For the most part, it simply means knowing what the priorities are, knowing what the priorities of our lives are to be, knowing what the priorities of God's heart are, knowing what the priorities of our church are. And and honestly, as God's people throughout the centuries, we have a horrible, horrible history of missing the point. One of the most famous church splits of all times happened in the late 1800s in Kentucky, of all places. Um, There was a tiny little church out in the county. Uh, They had two deacons, two deacons. Uh, As the story goes, one day one of the deacons decided to do something for the pastor, so he drove a peg into the back wall so that the pastor could come in and have a place to hang his hat, all right? So he drove a peg in the back wall. The thing is that deacon didn't talk it over with the other deacon. And so the other deacon said, you know, how dare you drive a peg in the wall without running that by me? And so it created this incredible argument between the two men. And then the church began to choose sides. I wish I were making this up, y'all. I'm not making this up. The church chose sides and it split the church. And so for a long, long time in that Kentucky County, they say that you had two churches. One was called Peg Baptist. The other one was called, guess, Anti-Peg Baptist. That's not a joke, y'all. Peg Baptist and anti-Peg Baptist church. That church split over what? A peg in the wall. Oh. Now, most of us, we sort of laugh because especially if you've grown up a Kentucky Baptist, you're thinking, oh my goodness, I think I went to that church. I think that was my church. I think I know those deacons. Uh, now, it, it's strangely familiar to us. And in some ways, we kind of laugh that off. The, the problem is the world also has heard all of those stories about us and, and they don't see that as funny. You understand that? When the world sees how we carry on and when the world sees how we can make gigantic deals out of very, very small things, when the world sees Peg Baptist and anti-Peg Baptist, they immediately see how ridiculous we are. And we are often ridiculous. They can see our silliness and God sees our hypocrisy. The problem is we don't ever seem to see either. We don't ever see how sometimes silly we are. We do not understand how hypocritical we are. And we never seem to understand how we miss the point. So Psalm 68 this morning, very briefly, I just want to point you back uh, to things that matter a great deal to the heart of God. And we're going to just look at the first few verses of Psalm 68. Listen. Rise up, O God, and scatter your enemies. Let those who hate God run for their lives. Blow them away like smoke. Melt them like wax in a fire. Let the wicked perish in the presence of God. But let the godly rejoice. Let them be glad in God's presence. Let them be filled with joy. 
Sing praises to God and to his name. Sing loud praises to him who rides the clouds. His name is the Lord. Rejoice in his presence. Father to the fatherless, defender of widows. This is God whose dwelling is holy. God places the lonely in families. He sets the prisoners free and gives them joy, but he makes the rebellious live in a sun-scorched land. Stop there. Father to the fatherless, defender of widows, this is God. Father to the fatherless, defender of widows, this is God. I love that. So the psalm begins, God God arises and his enemies scatter. A God of such power that he can melt the wicked like wax, the scripture says, that they evaporate in the heat of his holiness. This is God who rises up and his enemies scatter. I I, I love that. I I love that picture of, of the world where there is a holy and righteous God who's keeping score. I, I love that. A God who is not far off and a God who takes note of, of what happens in the world and a God who one day the, the scripture promises is going to rise up and his enemies should scatter because judgment comes. Notice how in scripture, whenever the, the word of judgment is proclaimed, it's always a word of good news but because it is good news that there have been such evil and, and wicked things happen on, on planet earth. And, and it is comforting to know that, that God knows. It is comforting to know that in this world, people don't get away with what they do. It, it's comforting to know that, that, that in, in this world of, of evil and, and wickedness and, and those who go through the world blazing this trail of destruction and evil, it's good to know that there is a God who, who takes note, a God who one day will, will come and, and melt the wicked li- like wax. I mean, this is what the psalmist says, and it's glorious, and it's good news. I mean, I guess it's good news. I mean, it's easy for us on the one hand to think, yeah, God, come and melt the wicked. The problem is there's a sense that when God does that, we're sort of all in trouble. I mean, if the standard is just who's wicked and who is righteous, you know, there is none righteous, no, not one. If it were not for Christ, understand, there would be none of us who could stand in the blazing furnace of his holiness. This is what the scriptures proclaim. But this God who is so great in his power, he is so good. You understand that? He is good. So when you read this passage about God's judgment, how he rises up and and those who hate goodness and those who hate peace and those who work against the love of God, they should scatter because they're going to be destroyed. There's a part of me that just thinks, Lord, let that happen today. Let that happen today. Let those who hate peace, let those who hate goodness, let them perish, God. Come and make the world the world that you intended it to be. Wipe away every tear. Let there be no more sorrow sickness or sadness. I mean, this is what scripture says. Everything is moving toward. But that's not the world we live in right now. I mean, that is not the world that we live in right now. As a matter of fact, there are some people who have difficulty even believing that there is a God on the throne at all because the world just seems so out of control. The world is chaotic. It's not true that in the world in which we live, the wicked suffer for what they do. It doesn't look that way. 
Honestly, it looks like the wicked just keep right on prospering. It looks like that they've just, they've got the world by the tail and, and they get their way in everything. The wicked, the rich. I mean, the world in which we live is not a world in which the scales of justice balance. Good people suffer every single day. Poor people suffer every single day and the rich just keep getting richer and those who have power continue just to use it for themselves. The world where God arises and his enemies scatter, that's just not the world that I live in. It's not the world you live in. But the psalmist gives us a picture, a picture of how things really are and a picture of how things will be on the day when God finally rises up and he comes to make a world that is going to be completely aligned according to his heart, according to his justice. Now, that, that's the amazing thing here. You see that God comes to make everything right. God comes to establish his justice on the earth. And, and you notice the first thing he does. He makes a beeline to a particular group of people, a particular category of people. And it's really quite extraordinary. Sing praises to God and to his name. Sing loud praises to the one who rides up on the clouds. I love that. A God of such glory, a God of such strength, a God of such beauty. He rides up on the clouds. His name is the Lord. Rejoice in his presence. Father to the fatherless, defender of widows, this is God. Did you expect that? I mean, when the God of the universe comes riding on the clouds, did you expect him to make a beeline to the widows and the orphans? Did you expect him to make a beeline to the lonely? I mean, when God finally comes, did you just expect that he'd make, I would think the first stop he would make might be by, you know, the headquarters of the Southern Baptist Convention. You think he'd swing by the White House. You think he'd, you know, maybe go by, I don't know, the Ellen Show or maybe sit in at Jimmy Fallon. He would go somewhere where the important people are. You would think that when God finally makes his appearance, you know, he would just show up somewhere on Good Morning America with George Stephanopoulos. I mean, you know, does God have no sense of where the important people hang out? Maybe God's heart is very differently shaped from our hearts. Maybe the way God judges status, maybe the way God judges importance, maybe the ones who are at the very center of God's heart are not the same ones who are at the very center of our attention. This is the amazing thing about the biblical revelation of who God is. He is not like us. He's not like most of us. God cares about people. God loves people. Scripture says God so loved the world. And we're not talking about planet earth at that moment. We're talking about the world of people. God loves people. God loves people. He loves people. Of all the things that people could say about us, about our church, would they say that we love people? Would they say that we love people? It's just a really simple principle of the spiritual life, but I think you could say it this way. We care because God cares. 
God loves people, and God cares about people, and God cares about what happens to people. And for that very reason, we should care about people, and we should care about how people suffer. We're supposed to care. God has a heart that breaks wide open for people, and we should be the same way. The problem is most of us don't care much about anybody other than ourselves. I mean, let's be honest. We just don't. We wake up every morning, we, we wash ourselves, we dress ourselves, we feed ourselves, and we go through all day long thinking about ourselves. And if we are comfortable, and if we are getting our way, then it is a good day. But if we are inconvenienced, if we have to pay a little more than we expected to pay for anything, I mean, the day is over. A bad hair day for us is a disaster. Something profoundly broken about our hearts because our hearts don't look very much like the heart of God. God cares about people and and not necessarily the people that that, that we focus on. God cares for what the ones Jesus calls the least of these. You remember the stories about Jesus on on earth? You remember how Jesus would come into a city, come into a town, and he would make a beeline for the sick. He would go to where the sick were, and he would heal the sick. He would find the blind man, and he would heal the blind. He would find the lame man, and heal the, the, the lame man. The, the religious people, Jesus just made their heads explode because they watched his life, and for all that they could figure out, he seemed more like a, a friend of sinners. And when they called him that, it wasn't a compliment to them. You understand? They thought that if Jesus was some sort of religious teacher, that he should favor the religious crowd. He should hang out more at the temple. But that just wasn't how Jesus rolled. You understand? Jesus went to where the broken people were. Jesus went to where the forgotten people were. Jesus had a giant heart for the needy, for the children, for all of those that everyone else would overlook and forget. Jesus' heart cared for people. Jesus said that he did the work that he saw his father doing. So Jesus in his life was always imitating God, imitating the father. His heart was like the father's heart. And the work that he knew the father wanted done in the world, Jesus said, I just go about doing the work that my father has for me. And that work looked a whole lot like loving children and healing the sick and caring for the poor. The problem is we who follow Jesus today, we don't seem to have a heart like Jesus has. We don't seem to do the work that Jesus did. Let's be really, really honest. This church is located far away from the poor and the sick and those who could really, really benefit from the resources that we have. Now, when I say located far away, it's not exactly true. You can walk. I mean, there's a very hungry man within walking distance of this church, but the point is we don't know him. And since we don't know him, we don't help him. But what we don't seem to understand is God cares about that man. God hasn't forgotten him. He has not somehow escaped God's notice. And one of these days, we will answer for the fact that he is hungry while we are so well fed. Do you understand that? One day, we will answer for the way that all of the others in the world have suffered. This is one of the clearest words of Scripture. That one day, we will stand before God, and God is not going to ask you, how big was your church building? How quickly did you pay off the next sinner? Tell me one more time. I just love that story of how generous your church was in giving to itself. 
Can you imagine God being impressed with that? Tell me one more time about how all your kids got to go to college. Tell me about how you took good care of your children. I don't see anything in Scripture where that's the standard of of how God's going to look at our lives. I don't see that at all. As a matter of fact, I don't think God's going to ask us if we manage to send our kids to college. I think he's going to be less concerned with whether or not your daughter goes to college. He's going to be really, really concerned, however, about the fact that other people's daughters go to bed hungry. I mean, that's what the Bible says. Isn't that what the Bible says? We're going to give an account one day. We will answer for the way others in the world have suffered. We will answer for the way they have suffered. It's frustrating, isn't it? That's frustrating. Some of you right now are frustrated. You ever sit at a supper with your kid and you're having lima beans, man? Y'all remember lima beans? When I was a kid, they were bigger. I mean, honestly, my grandma would have lima beans like the size of a cat's head, like one bean. (laughs) Have y'all seen, y'all seen, anybody, I'm not making, y'all seen lima beans like that big? You know, like you should cut it like a steak. I mean, those big, oh, and they're just the color of mud, just big brown lima beans. And it's like this bad joke because every adult at the table is just eating them up. You know, and they put beans on your plate. And like if you're 11, you get 11 beans, one for every year old you are. So you ever sat there staring at that plate of lima beans just thinking, oh, Jesus, if you could just come right now just before I have to eat these beans. And so you push them around the plate. You think, maybe if I spread these out, you know, I'll confuse my mother and she'll never know. You know, if I just spread these out so it looks like fewer beans, but they just, you know, they're this big and they just grow on, on, on the plate. So you, you push them around and then you, your mom says what? what? What will she say? What did your mom say to make you eat when you didn't want to eat? What did she say? Yeah, no dessert. Yeah, no dessert at all. Until you eat that, you're not, you're not going to, you know, Case would say, you're not going to see anything else to eat in this house, you know, forever until you eat that plate of beans, you know. And, uh, so a kid cries, <laughs> you know, like they're being tortured with, with beans. And, and then finally, your mother, your father, they, they pull out the, the, the big gun. They, they pull out the big gun. What do they say? There are starving kids yeah, wherever your mother, whatever, you know, shows she just watched National Geographic in Ethiopia, you know, there are kids in Bangladesh, you know, who would love to have those beans right there, you know, y'all remember? And honestly, as a kid, what did you think? Send them to them. Send them. We can fix that. We can make two kids in the world really happy right now. I can put my llama beans in a box and send all the llama beans to... Do you you remember that? Yeah, I mean, that's not a joke. We laugh and be isn't that just what we all thought? Let them have them, you know, ever, ever being, you know. You would think that or else you'd think, you know, either let them have it or how does my eating these beans... Help that kid over. The, I mean, you know, that's just that's just kid logic. I, okay, I could eat all these beans, puke, and then how does that help? <laughs> how does it help? There's this just this disconnection that we feel. How does it help? We watched the Compassion International video in the service before I stood up to speak. And man, just that story about that girl. With the Philippines, 
Man, my heart just broke for her. Just tears coming down her, her face and just thinking about how she lives and, and my heart breaks for her. Does my heart breaking for her help her at all? One of these days, we will stand before God and we will answer for the way others in this world have suffered, but it's frustrating because they seem so far away from us. Their suffering seems so far removed from our comfort. And honestly, I know all of you, I know all of you, you would do anything you could for a kid in your path. I think you would. If you could see and understand the suffering of a child or anybody else, you guys are good people. You give a kidney out of your body. But the problem is you just don't see and you don't know. Most of us just don't, we don't feel like we know anybody who needs help like that. That's why I love this passage here. Notice what the scripture says. The one who rides upon the clouds, his name is the Lord, father to the fatherless, defender of the widows. This is God whose dwelling is holy. Now, that word holy always means separate. In his holiness, understand, he is separated from us because none of us are holy. None of us can even exist. The world cannot exist in in the blazing furnace of the holiness of God because we are sinners. And everything that is not holy, understand, is just consumed, just burned away, melts like wax in the presence of his holiness. And so God is far away removed from us by his holiness. But that's the whole point of Scripture, that God who is holy, God who is separated by his purity and by his beauty. He is never content to live at a distance from us. God, from the very beginning, Genesis to Revelation, all the way to this day, right today, God is always somehow moving toward us in his holiness, moving toward those of us who are unholy. This is what he's done for us in Christ. He became one of us to to close that gap, to bridge that gap. God simply will not be content to live at a distance from us. He always closes that. So God, from his dwelling place, God, from his holy dwelling place, somehow he still is a father to the fatherless and a defender of widows. He still has a heart for every broken, lonely heart in this world. God, from the far distance of his holiness, still somehow has his heart for the broken and lonely in this world. We've got to have a heart like his. Somehow we've got to close that gap, close that distance between us and the people in this world who desperately need us, who desperately need the people of God to have a heart like God, to do the work of God in this world. Isn't this why we're here? Isn't this the point? Father to the fatherless. One of the amazing revelations about God in Scripture is the way He loves children. God loves children. Now, in the United States, in our culture, we sort of romanticize and idealize childhood. So for us, that doesn't seem striking or surprising. But in the biblical world, in the ancient world, children were not considered ideal. Children were considered either extra workers or extra mouths to feed, but they were not romanticized. They were not idealized. They were not valued. In the ancient world, if if you couldn't afford to feed a child or if you didn't like the sex of the child, it was completely acceptable just to abandon them, lay them by the side of the road and let them die. And, And no one shed tears for the children who were dying. That was the ancient world. 
So when Jesus would, would preach or teach and he would get down on his knees and welcome the children, you, you understand that's revolutionary, that's surprising. Nobody expected him to do that. The disciples don't expect that. It's when the disciples are telling the children, get out of Mr. Jesus' way. He doesn't have time to fool with you little, you know, snotty-nosed kids. Get out of here. You get lice, you get cooties, get out, you know, shoo, shoo. Jesus says, no, no. Don't you ever keep a child from coming from me. Don't you ever do that. Don't you ever forbid a child from coming close to me. Because this is what the kingdom of God looks like. What? I mean, this is what Jesus teaches. My kingdom is going to be filled with kids. It's an amazing picture of heaven in the Old Testament where it's a place. Heaven is a place where the streets are filled with children playing in the streets. I mean, heaven is a place with children. I love that. It's the heart of God. God loves children. So the question becomes, if God loves children so much, why does it seem like children suffer more than anybody else in this world? Because they do. If they are so very near to the heart of God, why do children bear so much more of the suffering in this world than grown-ups? It's, it's true, isn't it? Man, if, if there's a war, if, if there's a war, and there's always war, who suffers most? It's children always suffer. That the whole abortion industry, not just in our country, but in the whole world, I mean, the abortion industries. just murders children before they even have a chance to breathe. Did you see the science headlines two weeks ago? This is an aside, but I think this is the coolest thing. Google this, y'all. This is amazing. Scientists have now documented and actually imaged, have pictures of it. When the sperm meets the egg, ask your dad at home after this, when the sperm meets the egg and the egg is fertilized, there is a flash of light. There's a flash of light. Like when Katy Perry says, baby, you're a firework. You are. Yeah, you're sick. <laughs> There's this little flash of light, like a spark of life. Uh, Google that. You can go on YouTube and actually watch it. A fertilized egg in that very moment when the sperm meets the egg, lights. <laughs> Who? in the world would snuff that out. Who would do that? This is a spark of life. This is a spark. Who would do that? But through the history of the world, it's like all of the forces of, of, of evil, and, and truly they are, all of the powers of evil target children and infants always, always, the, the devil despises children. I mean, the devil hates children. Who hates children? Well, the devil, you understand, that's evil. And all the forces of evil that they target children, that, that they target infants. So if God has this giant heart for children, if God loves children, then understand the opposite of that. The, the devil, all of the forces of evil always target children. Father to the fatherless, this is God. This is what the scriptures say. I think this means some very important things for the church and for our church in particular. 
Number one, I think if we're going to be serious about doing the work of God, if we're going to be serious about living lives on mission, then we have to be very, very serious about nurturing and protecting and investing in the lives of children. This is the heart of God. Now, of course, our own children, I know that. Some of you hear that and think, oh my goodness, I'm going to go home and spend more time with my kids. You probably should. But honestly, all of our kids are doing okay. All of our kids are doing okay. But there are lots and lots of children who aren't okay. And one day we will answer, not just for how our children fared, but how the children of the world fared. Do you understand? One day we will answer for the suffering of the children of the world. Well, what's God's plan? It's sort of amazing. Well, what is God's plan for saving children? What's God's plan for taking care of children? Well, it's actually very simple. Father to the fatherless, defender of widows. This is God whose dwelling is holy. God places the lonely in, what's the word? Families. God places the lonely in families. God made children for families. God bless all those, Trisha and Kelly Lawrence in the house today, who, who, who have left Bowling Green, Kentucky to care for the children in Honduras, that they've opened an orphanage there. God bless all of the orphanages. God bless all of the children everywhere who are housed and, and, and cared for in orphanages. But understand, God didn't create children for orphanages. God didn't create children for the streets. God didn't create children for hospitals. God created children for families. For families. Every child deserves a family. So what does that mean? Well, y'all know that there are more church families in the United States than there are children who need to be adopted. Which means if just, you know, some of the church families would open their home and adopt children, then there wouldn't be any more kids needing families. As a matter of fact, if you do the math, there are so many churches in the United States. If, if one family in each church would take a kid out of the foster system, we could empty the foster system in the United States. Just one family in one church, every, every church. Pastor Tim, you know, man, our lives are crazy, crazy. We, you know, we go driving kids all over the place. I can't imagine one more kid. Oh, man. There's a kid who would just love the craziness of your family. Man. I'm not saying that God's calling every one of us to foster or adopt. But I do think he's calling more of us than half. I think he's calling more of us to consider that. The compassion table's in the lobby today. Compassion is good because it works through the local churches. If there's no local church there, there's no Compassion International there. Do you understand that? They work through local churches. You could adopt a kid through Compassion International. You, you could just simply begin to refuse to live your life at such a distance from people in need. Get to know your neighbors. And learn to have a heart that, that breaks for people who suffer. Because when you begin to care about people, then you're going to become more and more like Christ. Who was always a friend of sinners. One who welcomed children. One who... Made a beeline to the sick, the poor, the needy. I mean, that's where he was found. It's overwhelming. The, the needs are overwhelming. Sometimes we ask, well, what, what can we do? What, what, tell us what to do. 
I don't always know. I just know we got to do something. We have to do something. We have to care about people other than just ourselves. We have to start noticing the sufferings of those around us in Woodburn, in Kentucky, around the world. We've got to care. We have to care because God cares. And if we don't care about anybody but our own selves, our own kids, our own church, if we only care for ourselves, tragically, we've missed the point. Pray with me. God, the town of Woodburn is not that big, small. There are children in Woodburn who... uh, don't have good food, don't have enough food. People in this church have food to spare. Lord, there's a kid in Woodburn with lice in her hair and nobody in her house who uh, is ever going to comb through the lice in her hair. Lord, there are uh, people in this church who would who would comb the lice out of her hair. God, they're lonely, lonely people in this world today. Don't have friends. Lord, people in this church, we could be good friends. I don't know exactly, Lord, how the connections are never made. I, I don't know how. I don't know how we never seem to even know the kids in Woodburn. I don't know how it is, Lord, that we manage to give so much to our own children and so little to the children of others. Know how it is, Lord, that in the past week at this church, we threw away food. We just threw away food. I don't know. Why somehow it's easier to put it in the dumpster than to walk it across the street. I don't know why our hearts are so hard. I don't know why it is, Lord, that we just don't seem to even think to care. We don't see it, but the world sees it, Lord. They see they see how we live. They, they see how selfish we are. They see how we don't help. And God, most importantly, we know that you see And one day we will stand before you, you who have seen it all, you who have watched us, you who have blessed us with so many good things that we've not shared with others. One day, Lord, we will answer to you for why we kept so much to ourselves, why we threw so much in the trash, why we looked away from the faces of those who needed us. God, help us. Teach us to care. Give us hearts like your heart, eyes like your eyes. Help us, Lord, not to be so satisfied to live our lives at such a distance from those who desperately need our help. 
Lord Jesus, you have shown us how to close that gap. You came down and became one of us. So, Lord, help us to be friends of the children, friends of the sick, friends of the poor. Help us, Lord, to love like you love. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, but for the sake of the world. Amen.